Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, this year marks the 50th anniversary of the opening of Walt Disney World. We'll talk with Cher Krause Knight, author of the book Power and Paradise in Walt Disney's World. They have within their rights to build both their own airport and a nuclear power plant. We'll discuss the Ocklawaha River Valley, One of the oldest rivers in the state, the Ocklawaha, flows north and is so contorted and looped that distance doubles and redoubles on itself. And we'll visit the Cotton Club in Gainesville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In 1965, Walt Disney began quietly purchasing large tracts of land in Central Florida. He died in 1966 before seeing his dream for the property realized, but in 1971, the opening of Walt Disney World had a profound impact on Florida that continues today. The expansive collection of Disney theme parks and attractions has made Central Florida one of the most popular tourist destinations in the world. Cher Krause Knight is author of the book Power and Paradise in Walt Disney's World. She says she fell in love with Disney World at the age of eight. I went with my parents, took me on a trip, and I was totally immediately enthralled. But the thing was that it wasn't over for me with just that one trip, and we kept going back, and I just kept getting more and more excited about it. And then I got older, and I would go on my own, and... Pretty soon I realized I wasn't having the normal level of enthusiasm about the place, and I figured if I was that enthusiastic, I should look at it. And at that point, I was in graduate school, too, and so there were critical hesitations that were mixed in with my enthusiasm. And to me, the idea of having critical hesitations but enthusiasm might make a really nice book, but I took a while to figure out how I was going to balance all of that. Cher Krause Knight is still an unapologetic fan of Disney World, but wanted to approach her study of the park from a critical, scholarly perspective. I feel like that maybe that's part of why it took so long, because when I was first writing, and you're writing as a graduate student, you're always writing for someone else's approval, your professors, your committee, whatever. And, and the first approaches to the this topic for me were more distanced i was not doing much of the the personal narrative in it at all and when i came to write the book for a uh, university press of florida one of the things that i really uh, pushed for and i was lucky because uh, the reviewers of the book were um, 
in agreement about it was that it needed to have more of these kind of anecdotes that were interwoven, you know, throughout the text so that you were having the research and the critical experience, but then there were, were these first-person accounts, too, of I took my daughter here, I went here, that happened, so that there was a sense of me not being this distant spectator but this Disney participant. Although Cher Krause Knight approached her study of Disney World from the position of being a fan as well as an academic, she did find some negative aspects to the Disney experience. Yeah, I think one of the things, especially as an academic, to do research, it's frustrating how hard Disney makes that for people. Uh, the the limited access to the archives, while we, you know, on some level I might be able to understand it, but it's it, when you squeeze control that tightly, sometimes it has the opposite effect of what you would intend. And I do think most of what I've written would probably be. Um, more than fine, and maybe the Disney company would even be quite happy with it. But I don't think anyone should have final approval of a manuscript. And I think that Disney probably, in some ways, would probably have less negative press that has occurred over the years if they had offered more access to work with those resources and archives. I'm hoping it will change. I think the Disney Family Museum situation uh, in San Francisco, they're purporting to have a more open-door policy. If that really happens, and if it goes well, it'd be nice to see if there's some kind of ripple effect there throughout the, the kind of Disney enterprises. Other scholars have taken a more negative view of Disney World and its impact, perhaps most notably Rick Vogelsong, author of Married to the Mouse. I think they're really helpful. I think, you know, there's someone like Vogelsong, I think, is a really good researcher, um, I think his writing is more nuanced when you read it. There are some, uh, you know, he, he has serious hesitations about the cost, um, not just uh, financially, sociologically, and otherwise of Disney World being here. But um, he's very responsible as a critic. What I had trouble with, to my mind, were people who were so dead set about being negative in regards to Disney, but were also dead set in not actually going to the place. There are quite a few of academics still who feel really entitled to critique the place, but don't feel like they have to be to have gone to it. Say, well, I know what that's about. And that's not a good critical practice, no matter what your field is. Uh, I think that's starting to change, too. But for a long time, it was just seen as it was very kind of like uh, the thing to do as an academic, to do Disney bashing. And even now there are, you know, colleagues who just find it really charming, you know, in a dismissive way that this is the work I want to do. Long before Disney came to Florida, the state was marketed to tourists as a place where fantasy could become reality. Walt Disney wanted to perfect that idea of creating a new reality for visitors. Florida, for a long time, has represented this kind of transcendent place where, you know, in the 19th century, for example, there was, a, and, and into the early 20th century, there was a lot of marketing of Florida as this restorative place. Come back and regain your health, regain your youth, uh, that um, you would live not just a longer life, but a better, happier life here. And if you look at literary traditions um, in, in the United States, they, Florida was often fashioned that way as well. And Walt, I think, was... Sometimes people don't give him, and I think, enough credit for being as thoughtful and knowledgeable guy as he was. And I think that in addition to land being available and being plentiful and being cheap, that this Florida romanticism appealed to him. And he had some family connections to it. His parents had married in Kissimmee, and his dad had uh, 
for a brief period of time worked down here too. So he wasn't entirely unfamiliar with the place. And I think that, well, that might not account entirely for why he was drawn here. Uh, I think it's part of it. It already had a reputation as being a, a place where that was kind of magical, you know, and restorative. And I think the restorative aspect is really important too. Disney World's meant to be a respite from your daily life and routine. There's a legendary story that Walt Disney's brother, Roy Disney, was visiting Cypress Gardens and was so amazed by Dick Pope's theme park that he called his brother on the telephone. Walt Disney was not yet in the theme park business, but Roy reportedly encouraged Walt to consider it. Cher Krause Knight. He had been thinking about it, though. We know it seems like at least since probably the 30s, he had drawn up some uh, plans and ideas. He wanted to do a small theme park on his back lot in Burbank, but he was kind of having difficulty with the city officials there. And at the same time as when he started to, he, he went to Europe, he saw a tour of Tivoli Gardens in Copenhagen, and he started to get, by the, I'd say, the 40s into the early 50s, really interested in these other themed environments. And so he was sending out teams to Knott's farm to measure the the width of the sidewalks and to try and figure out you know what worked and what didn't work at these theme places because there were some places he thought did it just all wrong and others that did it closer to right but he thought he could kind of perfect it and I think that's also why he builds Disney World because Disneyland for him wasn't quite right. Disneyland was Walt Disney's first theme park opening in 1955 in Anaheim California. The park was quickly surrounded by urban development, which Disney did not like. As Cher Krause Knight explains, Walt Disney wanted Disney World to be an insulated world of its own. So he only secured about 180 acres there, and here in Florida, 27,443. So the land holdings are vastly different. And I think in it's important to know, too, his financial picture was really different when he was building Disneyland. Uh, he actually um, had to kind of cash in on his own life insurance policy, and he was scrambling to get the money together. He um, had to make a deal with the the uh, television executives who showed the Disneyland series to, to give them a percentage of the park initially. I mean, he really scraped it together. He was the big believer behind that, and everyone kind of came later. By the time Disney World happened, they, they had the others had been convinced. And so I think he realized pretty quickly, because uh, although 180 acres sounds like a lot, for the vastness of what he was conceiving and dreaming of, it, it wasn't going to do it. And what in particular was probably really frustrating, to, not probably was frustrating to him, was this buffer zone. If you come to the Florida property, once you enter Disney's property proper, it's a bit of time before you actually start hitting any of the attractions or theme parks. And so that sense of an insulated buffer zone, um, these meticulously, the highways are of different quality in terms of maintenance as soon as you get on the Disney property. That's something he never had. And even I was just in Anaheim in June, when you go back there, it's boom, you turn a corner and you're right there. And I don't think he liked that, one, from a, a logistical standpoint, but two, also from a symbolic or psychological standpoint. He wanted it to be a more transformative experience, and the buffer zone was supposed to be a point of transition. What is most alarming to some critics of Disney's sprawling empire is that it actually has its own government with special powers. That was the creation of the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which was in the works before Walt died, although I think all the, the official kind of the signatures on the legislation happened after he had passed away. And Governor Kirk did seem to really apprehend 
how weighty these governmental powers were. And it's really kind of unprecedented. We don't really see any private corporation that's been able to maintain officially um, be endowed with those sorts of powers. And it's a, you know, an incredible amount of responsibility that comes with it, too. Most people, I think, who visit Disney World are entirely unaware of that. And if they are, they're probably not aware of the extent they have um, within their rights to build both their own airport and a nuclear power plant. And we can all kind of ha ah, chuckle about that. But but think about for a moment the you know the potential, the responsibility, and the the risks involved were any of those things to occur. So um, if I lived here, I might my concerns might be exacerbated further. Right now I look at it and it, it is concerning to me and it's kind of a aha thing. If I lived here, I think it would be more pressing, you know, and I had a kind of daily deal with Disney. Cher Krause Knight teaches at Emerson College in Boston. She's author of the book Power and Paradise in Walt Disney's World. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like our virtual public history forum. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, the content of the Florida Historical Quarterly is so varied, there is really something for everyone. As we've talked about before, some special issues focus on a particular subject of interest. One issue looks at river environments. Yes, in 2004, the Florida Historical Quarterly published a special issue under the title Cultural Constructions and Natural Destruction in the Ocklawaha River Valley. The three articles were expanded versions of papers presented at the Alan Morris Conference at Florida State University. As historian Sherry Johnson noted in her introduction to the special issue, the three studies demonstrated how exploitation of the river furthered modern ideas, promoted progress, and created economic opportunity. At the same time, they also showed how modernization had the potential to wreak havoc on a fragile, unique, and irreplaceable ecosystem. The three authors, Stephen Knoll, David Tegeter, and Frederick R. Davis, examined the river environments of the St. John's, the Ocklawaha, and the Withlacoochee Rivers over a period from mid-19th century to the 1990s, roughly 150 years. Knoll's article focuses on tourism on the Ocklawaha in the late 19th century. He uses various travel guides of the period that describe the beauty of the river, which one observer called an infinite body of water that follows a vaguely defined course of channel. One of the oldest rivers in the state, the Ocklawaha flows north, and is so contorted and looped that distance doubles and redoubles on itself. 
Travel upstream on the Ocklawaha to Silver Springs became a major tourist experience in the 1870s and the 1880s, with travelers describing the landscape in the language of fantasy and architectural spectacle. Harriet Beecher Stowe, who was at first reluctant to make this trip, used such language in her account of a trip up the river to Silver Springs. It was a spectacle, weird, wondrous, magical, to be remembered as one of the things in a lifetime. We seemed to be floating through an immense cathedral whose white marble columns met in vast arches overhead and were reflected in the glassy depths below, she said. Time and advancing technology ended the trips up the Oklawaha by the turn of the century as the area underwent large-scale cypress harvesting and the railroad carried tourists to other sites. But the travel literature of the period lived on and played an important role in the late 20th century as it was used to recall what the river had been in comparison to what it would be if the Cross Florida Barge Canal was completed. And Connie, of course, Stephen Knoll and David Tegeter wrote an excellent book together called Ditch of Dreams, The Cross Florida Barge Canal and the Struggle for Florida's Future. Tegeter also has an article in this special issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly, right? He does. He examines the ill-fated New Deal Public Works Project to connect the Atlantic to the Gulf through a proposed Atlantic Gulf Ship Canal that would follow the St. John's to the Oklawaha and the Withlacoochee to the Gulf. The 1930s project opened to great fanfare as the greatest public works project in Florida, but it was abandoned a year after its groundbreaking and following considerable political and economic antagonism to the construction of the canal. The project had strong support from President Franklin Roosevelt and Florida political leaders. The Army Corps of Engineers saw the project as a way to connect the Midwest to the Atlantic, a pathway down the Mississippi River, across the Gulf, through the canal, to the Atlantic and the port of Jacksonville, to the Atlantic Ocean. Opposition came from several economic interests that used environmental concerns to justify their position and political opposition that focused on legal issues. The environmental objection centered on fears that the deep cut required for the canal would drain fresh water from the aquifer system, water that would be replaced by salt water. Citrus growers were especially concerned about this potential effect on the state's natural water system. The political opposition, both within and without the state, focused on the constitutional issue of Roosevelt's use of the executive order to launch the project with $5 million of the estimated $146 million cost to construct the canal. Although the project launched a great fanfare, Congress ultimately refused to fund it. If the Atlantic Gulf Ship Canal failed, the idea for a cross-Florida canal continued in the dreams of infrastructure engineers and was resurrected in the form of the Cross-Florida Barge Canal in 1942, when Congress enacted legislation to construct the canal, but again provided no funding. Now, environmentalists, of course, were were not fond of the Cross-Florida Barge Canal, but plans did proceed even without congressional funding. Yes. In the 1950s, interest in the canal gained traction as the result of several intersecting events. The publication of a positive cost-benefit analysis, the growing population in Florida, the rise of Fidel Castro to power in Cuba, and the election of John Kennedy to the presidency, and 
that renewed White House support. In 1964, President Lyndon Johnson launched the construction of the new canal with a dramatic dynamite blast. That is where Frederick Davis takes up the most unlikely success story in Florida environmental history. Marjorie Harris Carr, who styled herself as a Micanopy housewife, launched a grassroots campaign to save the Oklawaha and stop the construction of the canal. Congress became aware that no environmental impact study had been conducted on the effects of the canal on Florida's fragile environment. In 1970, candidates for the Florida State Legislature were polled on their support for the construction of the canal. 80% of those responding to the questionnaire expressed opposition to the project, providing another reason for halting construction. Finally, President Richard Nixon made environmental quality a centerpiece of his administration when, on January 1, 1970, he signed the National Environmental Protection Act and two weeks later became the first president to include environmental issues in his State of the Union address. On January 19, 1971, he halted the work on the Cross Florida Barge Canal. The project remained technically viable, although no work was done on the construction of the canal, until 1991 when Florida agreed to the federal deauthorization bill. For the remainder of her life, Marjorie Carr fought to restore the Oklawaha to its natural state, a fight that led to the creation of what is now called the Marjorie Harris Carr Cross Florida Greenway, a 117-mile-long state park that spans the peninsula along the line the canal would have taken. As Davis summarized, Marjorie Carr's successful fight to save the Oklawaha River emanated from her love of the Florida wilderness, her belief that ordinary citizens could affect political change, and her view that science could influence legislation. So what could have been an environmental disaster is uh, now a, a park for people to enjoy. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. The Cotton Club in Harlem, New York was well known, but there was also a cotton club in Gainesville, Florida. Holly Baker has more. During the time of racial segregation, the Cotton Club in Gainesville, Florida was a popular venue for African-American entertainers on the Chitlin Circuit. Vivian Filer is the founder and chair of the board of the Cotton Club Museum and Cultural Center. Whenever I have a chance to talk about the history of the Cotton Club, I like to start with the building itself, which is a building that was built by the soldiers, which is an important piece of its history. And for World War II, the soldiers were called to Camp Blanding in Stark, Florida. They cut the trees, milled the lumber, and built all of those buildings on the camp at the time. This building is one of those structures. So I always like to give that kind of reverence to the fact that it represents the work of those soldiers in World War II. When the war ended and these buildings were sold off to Floridians or whoever would agreed to move them off the campus. Uh, they could buy them for a dollar. It was their responsibility to move them to wherever. So Gainesville is filled with those buildings. They're all over Florida, actually. You can find them in different places. When Camp Blanding closed in 1946, at the end of World War II, 
The building that would soon become the Cotton Club was one of 3,000 that was put up for sale. William and Eunice Perryman, owners of a grocery store in Gainesville's Spring Hill community, bought the building and had it moved from Stark to a lot near their store to become the Perry Theater. This particular building was purchased by two brothers. They had a store in Gainesville on the corner of Southeast 8th, what is now Southeast 8th Street and 7th Avenue. But they bought this building and brought it to the east side of town, which is predominantly African-American, but there was no theater there. So they brought it over to Gainesville from Stark, Florida, some, I guess, some 50 miles away, so that it would be opened as a theater. It did open as a theater, the Perry Theater. It closed as a theater uh, relatively quickly. And Sarah McKnight, who I considered to be an exciting entrepreneur, who was way before her time, she owned several businesses in Gainesville. And she purchased this building so that she could make it into a nightclub for African-Americans because at that time, obviously, it was segregation and Jim Crow, and we were not allowed into big clubs. By 1951, the Cotton Club was attracting talented musicians who were touring on the Chitlin circuit, such as James Brown, B.B. King, Bo Diddley, and Ray Charles. These bands came through. She opened the building as a big band's club, named it for the Cotton Club in Harlem. And that's where its name came from. So as bands came through, they were not yet famous bands. They were good and they went on to be famous, but they traveled on something called the Chitlin Circuit. And the Chitlin Circuit was something that existed all over the East, all over the Southeast, wherever segregation was, the Chitlin Circuit was a part. It's just that there were different places on the Chitlin Circuit itself. But the mainstay of that usually was a hotel. Band players had someplace to stay, to live, during the time they were in a certain area. But they weren't always right there in the same city. And Gainesville became then a place for them to stay because it housed the Dunbar Hotel. The Dunbar Hotel, the only black hotel in Gainesville, was a popular accommodation for performers on the Chitlin Circuit. By the time that the Cotton Club building closed down in 1959, it was known as the Blue Note Club. The Blue Note Club never became as popular as the Cotton Club. By then, their jukebox had mostly replaced the live musical performances. After the Blue Note Club ended, the building was purchased and used as a warehouse for the Babcock Furniture Company until 1970. It remained vacant for several decades until 1995 when the Cotton Club building, along with four other buildings on the site, was sold to Mount Olive African Methodist Episcopal Church. Vivian Filer, a longtime member of the church, made it her mission to turn the Cotton Club into a museum and cultural center. In 2019, that dream became a reality. Today, the Cotton Club Museum and Cultural Center preserves and highlights African-American history and culture through art exhibits, concerts, educational programs, and other community services. Since the COVID-19 pandemic, the Museum and Cultural Center has had several virtual events, but Vivian Filer is looking forward to having in-person visitors again. History begins at home. You know, it's broad and we go back to Africa and all of that is, is wonderful and, and near and dear to my heart. And wherever it fits, we will include it. But we want people to know they have heroes and sheroes right here in Gainesville. And that gives our children something to look up to, somebody to look up to and someplace to go with their dreams. So, you know, I did second grade the other day on Zoom, just all these second graders. 
And they were just filled with questions because I'm a storyteller. And so their questions were really good. So I'm just waiting until I can get them in the museum because I'd love to have them sitting around my feet as opposed to on Zoom. To learn more about the Cotton Club Museum and Cultural Center in Gainesville, Florida, go to cottonclubmuseum.com. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week and anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.